Hi there. Today's show is brought to you by Hoopsters. If you want to connect with your kids or your friends, put your phone down and play Hoopsters, the greatest basketball-themed board game ever made. The game of Hoopsters is quick-paced and packed with all the thrills of basketball and the strategy of backgammon. Head to hoopsters.store to learn more. Good times. Hello again, everybody. It's uh, been a while since I've had a Pete Brown Says episode out there, but it feels good to be producing an episode this weekend. I know some of you may have heard me on the Risk podcast, episode 1125, called Adaptation, which came out in late March. That was my second appearance on Risk. It was a very short piece that I submitted to them, and I don't want to tee up today's episode too much, but... That piece actually exists inside of what you're going to hear today. But every time I'm on the Risk Podcast, I know I pick up some new listeners. So this is my first chance to say welcome to you all. And I hope you've had a chance to dig into my episodes and find some things to like. And if you did, please do tell a friend or two about the show. It is the cusp of summer here in central Ohio as I record today, and we are nearing the end of the quarantine. Our state is getting ready to open up again. Just been a weird time, and I wish I could say I used the time to work on my writing, work on new episodes of the podcast. But the truth is, uh, my day job is actually oddly busy. It's well-suited for this particular kind of work, and so I have been logging tons and tons of hours uh, in addition to what you're going to hear about today. This episode is mostly vignettes that I wrote between December and March as I was back and forth to Cleveland visiting my dad as his health failed. But it's also all happening during the unfolding of the coronavirus pandemic. So I would work on this essay in bits and pieces only when I was up visiting him in the hospital. He lives in Cleveland. It's a two-hour drive from me. So when I go, I'll typically go in the evenings and stay overnight with him in the room. But I thought, as we're starting to ease out of some of the restrictions here in Ohio, that I could stitch these together and put out this episode. So, wherever you are, I hope you're safe and doing well, and that that continues to be the case. Please enjoy today's episode, which I'm calling The Cutoff Man, or Death in the Time of COVID. It begins in January 2020. I've been thinking about my dad a lot this week. There are the obvious worries. He's 94 years old and has broken his hip, his arm, and his pelvis all in the past six months. Two days ago, he graduated from the rehab hospital and was returned to his nursing home just as the coronavirus-driven no-visits-to-nursing-home rules were handed down from Ohio Governor Mike DeWine. I've put up signs everywhere in his room so he knows why we're not there, my sister texted me. So, I'm sitting here thinking of what that will be like for him when he wakes up, hoping he can see the signs and read them and through the haze of his medications somehow parse their meaning. My three sisters visit my dad all of the time, several times a week, in fact. It's going to be a big change for him. Hospital-induced delirium is a thing. You can Google it. It tends to impact elderly patients who have some form of dementia, particularly if they're moved around a good bit. I'm not sure what level of dementia my dad might have, 
because he likes to mess with me. Always has, and I believe, always will. Jerry Brown, former California governor. Your uncle, he'd tell me, when I was 10 or 11 and believed everything he said. Jim Brown, Cleveland Brown's legend. Third cousin, he'd say, without blinking. When I was in 8th grade, we had to interview our parents for a family tree project, and I discovered that the brown side of the family tree in my version was markedly different than it had been for my sister the year before, and hers markedly different from my other sisters of the year before that. God only knows what those nuns thought of my family. But for a 94-year-old who's been wheelchair-bound for half a year, my dad gets moved around a lot. On his last visit to the hospital, he started in the ER, then was moved to orthopedics until his irregular heartbeat caused some concerns and he was moved to cardiology. Then, to a third floor, for reasons I wasn't too clear on, until the ambulance guy showed up to take him to a rehab hospital. Often, if he's hospitalized, I hop in my car and start the drive up from Columbus to Cleveland, and it seems I always arrive to find he's been moved from where he was when my sisters first called me two hours earlier. It's not a big deal for us, really, though. We've all gotten to know this hospital quite well. When I heard he was moving back to the nursing home this week, there was a momentary sense of relief, because even with the no-visitors policy, at least he could stay in one place for a while. February. This afternoon, I'm not thinking about my dad's litany of health woes, nor am I worrying about coronavirus, or even if he'd seen the signs my sisters left for him to read. I'm thinking about pizza bagels. Pizza bagels from the West Side Market. Cleveland's West Side Market is one of the oldest indoor-outdoor food markets in Ohio, opening up in 1912. A few times when I was growing up in the 1980s, my dad would take me out of our tidy, air-conditioned grocery store suburb to this market, to the stalls of brightly colored fruits and the calls of the men trying to sell them. I'd plug my nose and walk through the fish room and look at the eels and other undersea wonders, either limply clinging to life or giving it up altogether on tidy beds of ice. And then he'd buy me a pizza bagel, which is basically what it sounds like, a pizza crossed with a bagel fresh and filling. Life itself, it seemed to me. And whenever he'd ask if I wanted to go down to the West Side Market, it was this I looked forward to the most. Here's why I'm thinking about pizza bagels today. This afternoon, lots of new coronavirus closures were announced. My son's college, the high school where my daughter goes and my wife works. Three weeks off, it seems. Maybe more. No one knows for sure at this point. What I do know is this. I've spent $900 on groceries over the past two days. In large part, this is because my wife, far more of a prepper than I am, insists that we stock up. And, while I'm trying to stay on the short side of the the this-is-the-end-time-style panic, she's probably right. And I know we'll consume all this stuff eventually, so it, it just didn't seem like an argument worth having. I mean, why have a credit card if you can't use it to stock up for quarantine? Am I right? But it was a funny few shopping trips. First of all, We both had our own carts and our own lists. We rarely grocery shop this way anymore. In fact, we've gotten kind of dependent on Instacart lately, so we're both a bit rusty with the in-person grocery run. But I learned, always awkwardly and always the hard way, over our years of marriage, that errands were something we run together, and that means not always running them in the most efficient way, which, unfortunately, is the way my brain is constantly calculating. 
My brain never took into account that it hurt my wife's feelings when I'd pull out two carts, roll one over to her, and tear the list in two. Efficient? Yes. Together? No. So, I asked when we were walking into the store if she wanted to shop together or shop efficiently, because we know, after 25 years of marriage, that this is a reasonable choice to offer. And she grabs her own cart and tears the list in half herself and tells me to meet her up front in 20 minutes. My half of the list is pretty common stuff for us. Bread, deli meat, taco shells. But I know I'll be picking up my son in a few hours, and one of his college friends who lives out of state is going to be staying with us as well. So... I'm pretty liberal in interpreting the snacks and drinks line item, filling up my cart with pretzels and Doritos and popcorn and sodas. For my wife, I throw in several bottles of one of her favorite wines, which is on sale. For my daughter, boxes of Pop-Tarts. And for me, Fruit Loops. I mean, fruit's good for you, right? Even if it is spelled with a double O. When I meet up with my wife, I see from her cart that she's gone down the the in-it-for-the-long-haul route. Lots of pasta and canned sauces, boxes of broth. I'm fascinated by, but no better than to ask about, the ten cans of baked beans. Fascinated because we as a family never make baked beans. Nobody likes them. In fact, I'm guessing there's still a few cans in our pantry from the early 2000s. But baked beans, right? I mean, when you hear, stock up for the apocalypse, what do you imagine? Me? I'm sitting in the basement, eating cold baked beans straight from the can. There's something about them that just screams bomb shelter. We end up making a second trip to the grocery later for all the things we've decided that we've forgotten. Dog food and cat litter, more coffee beans, more wine, more almond milk, which my wife tells me won't go bad until you open it. My wife has an autoimmune disorder, and she's a high school teacher, and, well, she gets sick a lot. Flu, pneumonia, H1N1, remember the swine flu? She got that in the summertime one year, long after it had left the headlines. So I tell her on this trip that it will be her last going to the store for a while, and that I'll handle the shopping going forward. And she looks at our cart full of wine and dog food and says, Okay. I'm the youngest in my family, a source of much consternation for my three older sisters, I assure you. And when I leave for college at 18, my visits home become few and far between. As my grandma would say, I'm having a time of it down in Athens, Ohio, where I go to school. I look at my dorm mates who drive home each weekend with nothing short of incredulity. Why would you leave the greatest place in the world to go home for the weekend? The weekend! It's the best part of the week! So I only come home when the holidays require that I leave campus. One spring, I break my ankle playing basketball, and my parents insist that I come home to be seen by a, quote, real doctor, unquote. But I say, hard pass, and I pop the anti-inflammatory they gave me at the student health center, and I plunge my foot into a garbage can full of ice and natural light. My 
dad retired when I was in the fourth grade, so growing up I was used to him being around the house. I'm not retired, but I've worked from home for a good deal of my career, and I think my kids are used to me being around too. But even though my dad was around, and I too am around, there is a distance that gets created when a boy reaches his late teens. There's less to talk about, I guess, or some new sudden difficulty in talking about almost anything. When you do talk, you default to safe topics, baseball maybe, or traffic. What creates this difficulty between 19-year-old boys and their dads? Because I feel it when I'm with my 19-year-old son, as sure as I felt it with my own dad. My son's interests are very different than mine. Dungeons and Dragons, video games, I can ask him about these things only in the most basic of ways, and he responds in kind. When I hit upon a topic with some traction, there's an inner celebration, and a mental note to ask about it again. On occasion, my son will call or text me from college that he needs to talk to me, but this, in general, is code for he needs money for something, and still, I embrace those calls. I try to savor them. Often, I hang up and cry a little bit. Manly tears, I assure you. Here's one theory I have about this. When you're a kiddo, up until your early teens, you can get jazzed about a lot of things, and you like sharing with your parents what you're jazzed about. And as a parent, you see this, and you love to see how your kids can love one thing and then another thing. And they love these things deeply and fully and in the way that a person who hasn't been kicked around much in life can love something. And we savor these times because we know they won't last. Shitty things will happen. You'll learn to play some defense around your interests lest they say something about you you don't understand. By the time you're 19 or 20, well, it's hard to love anything like you did when you were 12. And at 19 or 20, you're into deep conversations with your peers, not your parents, your peers. You're checking your understanding of the world, an understanding that, like it or not, your parents helped form, but you're checking it against theirs and against the world as you now encounter it on your own. So, you're too old to get excited about things, too cool to want to share that excitement with your parents, whose upbringing skills, by the way, you're just starting to question. So, yeah, baseball maybe, or traffic, safe territory. 15 February. I'm thinking about this a lot as we prep for the apocalypse and the imminent return of our son and his college friend. I'm thinking of it because of oatmeal pies, in fact. You know oatmeal pies, right? a little Debbie confection that features two soft-baked oatmeal cookies with a thick spread of icing cream between them, individually wrapped 12 to a box for a buck ninety-nine. In some other time, by the way, remind me to research how soft-baked cookies came to be a thing in the world. Because I remember a lot of hard chocolate chip cookies when I was growing up, and the occasional soft one fresh out of the oven was like the sighting of an endangered species. I've always been amazed and mystified by however they figured out how to make cookies soft all the time. Now here are some things you need to know about oatmeal pies. I love them, and my son loves them. I may not have taught him how to change the oil or slip a punch, but this is one thing we both share that maybe I passed along to him. And here's the other thing. In addition to the $1.99 box, there's a box for three ninety-nine. 
And you'd be totally right to think that this is just a bigger box with more oatmeal pies in it, right? Wrong. It is a bigger box, but the oatmeal pies themselves are bigger, like twice as big, and the cream center is twice as thick and fluffy. And once you have one of these babies, I mean, you just can't go back to those puny ones from the buck ninety-nine box. You just can't do it. Not long after I'd returned home from college for a visit sometime in the early 80s, having dumped my duffel bag of dirty clothes in the laundry room, pet the dog, and snuck out back for a smoke, I'd find myself in my family's kitchen, pantry doors wide open, looking for something to eat. And then my dad would come into the kitchen, and we'd have conversations like this. Him. There's grapes in the fridge. Me. Hmm. Him. There are oranges there that are so sweet you won't believe it. Me. Uh Uh-huh. As a young man, I never really understood these conversations. But my dad telling me about what groceries he had recently bought was a dependable facet of every visit home. And I think he was always disappointed in my responses. He grew up poor during the Depression when a grape or sweet orange was the kind of thing you hoped to get on Christmas. It must have seemed a miracle to him that he could provide such things in the regular manner of shopping for the week. I'd never know how good I had it. But I was a Saturday morning cartoons with frosted flakes kind of kid. My tastes ran to the processed and prepackaged. Don't tell me about fucking grapes, man. Give me Pop-Tarts and Carnation Instant Breakfast Shakes. Gen X is the lost generation after all, not just existentially, but also lost to things like fresh grapes and sweet oranges. And then one visit, during my sophomore year of college, I came home and found my dad had bought a two-liter of grape soda, a heretofore unprecedented event in our family shopping history. I stood staring at it for a moment because I couldn't quite believe it was in our kitchen. It wasn't just that it was an unusual purchase. It was that my dad had somehow paid attention to what I liked, noticed that I liked grape soda, which is, by the way, a whole nother podcast episode waiting to happen. And then he went out and bought it in anticipation of my visit. And then he said these words. There's grape soda there. And I went out and bought some pizza bagels that you can heat up in the microwave. And in response, I said these words. Hell yeah! And my dad was pleased. And I was fresh and fulfilled. And it was life itself. I think of that hell yeah moment all the time when I know my son is coming home from college. I rack my brain to think of what products I can buy that might get a hell yeah out of him. Because despite my better efforts, when he comes home and starts noodling around the pantry, I also walk out there and I start to tell him about the things I bought. And I found that oatmeal pies, the big kind, are reliable hell yeahs. RC Cola is too at the moment, but the Baja Blast Mountain Dew phase seems to have passed. Chips and pretzels are all well and good, but they don't rise to hell yeah status. Last time, a box of Cinnamon Toast Crunch got a hell yeah, but this time it did not. So I am a dad trying to know my teenage son through the foods that make him happy, just as my dad was with me. 
and I wish I could say I'm better at it than my dad was, or that my experience tells me that it gets better or somehow less awkward to talk with your son as he becomes a young man. But I know it does not. The business of building your young man life gets to be pretty intensely personal for a long spell there in your 20s. And you hope he's happy and enjoying his retirement, but the truth is, your old dad just doesn't seem to rate much anymore. I hope that's not the case for me as well. But I'll borrow a page from my wife's book, and I'll try to be prepared if it is. February. My dad was back in the nursing home all of one day before the squad brought him back to the hospital. He was having trouble breathing and his heart was starting to fail. I don't think you need to come up tonight, my sister texts me, but tomorrow morning for sure. This is a very common text I get from my sisters. They're very kindly, I think, very kindly trying to spare me a late night drive. But the truth is, my dad is 94, almost 95, and I know that each trip to the hospital from here on out is going to be a crapshoot. Also, I prefer the night drive to just lying awake in bed and wondering what's going on. So when I can, I drive up. I think the worst part of any of his episodes is the ER part. That's when my dad is the most disoriented, the most out of it, the most subject to whatever is ailing him. I'm never there for this part and all of my sisters have told me of its awfulness, of the times they were sure this was it. It must be an awful few hours to commandeer. By the time I arrive, he's usually recovered somewhat, admitted to one section or another of the hospital, settled in, maybe sleeping peacefully. Tonight, he woke up shortly after I arrived, told the nurse that I was his big brother and that I was running away from my wife, an odd narrative he sometimes breaks out when he's not 100% sure who I am. When she leaves, he tells me that he's going to buy a Studebaker and he and the nurse are going to drive to California together, but he's got to figure out a way to get Medicare to pay for it. And I lean in and ask a few questions about his plan, which fascinates me, by the way, especially the Medicare part. And he gives me answers that are somewhat alarmingly well thought out. I don't have the heart to tell him that Studebaker went out of business in 1966. It's hospital delirium, I know. And I'm his son and not his big brother, and my marriage, as far as I know, is just fine. But there's still that part of me that's just hoping he's messing with me. So here we sit, talking away about a harebrained scheme that he's totally jazzed about and has nothing to do with shopping or baseball or traffic. And I embrace these few minutes before he falls back to sleep and try to savor them, try to feel fresh and fulfilled by these odd moments, made up as they are of the stuff of life itself. It is the next morning now as I write this update. It looks like this is another hospitalization my dad will endure, if not conquer, and he'll be set back on the road to recovery. When he's been awake today, he's convinced that it's 1945 or maybe 1946, and he's in a naval hospital in Hawaii, which is a thing that happened to him in his life as he served in the Pacific Theater during World War II, usually underneath, tending the boilers on whatever ship he was on. The entire story, as he has told it to us, is just this. We were in convoy with the fleet. The fleet came under attack. I woke up in the hospital with a broken back. 
and I was in there for six months before they sent me back into action. That's it. We don't know any of the particulars around this, I'm afraid, because he steadfastly refused to discuss the war any further, saying only, if you asked him questions, everybody that I knew died. But his nightmares betrayed him, quite regularly, actually, when he'd wake up our house screaming, It's up to my neck. It's up to my neck. Someone help me, it's up to my neck. Thinking of this still turns my blood cold. So, when he thinks he's back in the war, it creates some challenges for his caregivers, particularly the exceedingly gracious Dr. Lin, from whom he recoils in horror. He's been napping for about 45 minutes as I'm sitting here writing, and the good news is he woke up just about two minutes ago and gave me a long look and a smile, and then he promoted me to general. What more can a son ask of his pop? I have my dad's old baseball mitt. It's one of those five-finger kinds of gloves that you see players in the 40s and 50s wearing in old baseball films. Looks like a giant hand. My dad was almost 50 when I was born. In fact, he was the age I am now. And he was a full generation older than my peers' dads. He wanted nothing to do with organized youth sports, but he did teach me to throw and catch in our backyard, wearing that crazy old mitt of his. He taught me not to lunge at a fly ball by smacking my fist into my mitt, once, twice, then make the catch as it comes to you. Then he'd call out, hey, cut off man, and he'd hold his arms up and I'd zip it back at him as hard as I could. I remember these times playing catch in great detail because they are among the most animated I'd ever seen him be. The shade from the birch tree in the backyard, the pop of the ball in my mitt, the smell of leather. I was never a very good hitter when I played baseball growing up, but my fielding was always strong and reliable. Which, as I think about it, having just written that sentence, is what I think my dad was trying to teach me about how to be in the world. Strong and reliable. March. We're back at the nursing home in the chronic care wing. My dad's heart problems continue. For a little while, as I sit here trying to write... I keep a little log of the sentences my dad says out loud in his sleep. You'll need it tomorrow, he says. Or, you win, but they get the money. It's simple. Sometimes, quite emphatically, he calls out, I was sitting right outside, so I heard the whole damn thing. But eventually, these sentences break down to bits of word salad, and then to just random groans. I stop keeping note of them. It's too depressing. Until he starts calling out for his mother. The awful groan that's been going on for at least two minutes has morphed into him calling out Mama, Mama, a grandma I never knew who died from diabetes in the 1950s. My sisters have warned me about this, but it's jarring even so, and it gets my attention. It's not uncommon for people near the end of their lives to call out to their mothers. Soldiers dying on battlefields are known to do it. Alligators, too, if you want to know the truth. I've seen some footage of an alligator bull who lost a fight, and as he swam away dying, he started to call out in the same way that baby alligators do to their mothers. It sounds like this. Wah! 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 Despite the precedent, it's an awful thing to hear from your dad, 
this man who loomed so large in my life for so long, now lying ashen and tiny and at an odd angle in his hospital bed, wires connected at various parts. For a moment I consider recording him, and then I don't. It's just not the kind of thing you need to hear in order to get this story. Instead I pull my chair closer to him and reach out and take his hand, and for the first time in a day and a half he opens his eyes in something other than fear, a slight recognition in them, and in his wispy voice moans, Petey, oh Petey, which is what he always called me growing up when the times were good. Petey, he says, I love you so much, but I have to go. It's time to go. And I hold his hand tighter, and tears pour from my eyes, and I say, you can go now, Dad, it's okay. Go meet up with Mom. She's waiting for you. But he closes his eyes and drifts off to sleep, and for a while at least the calls have stopped. And I don't move. I just sit there holding his gnarled and veiny hand, and I'm not crying like boo-hoo or shaking crying, but the tears just form steadily for a good 45 minutes and roll down my cheeks. It's not something I do often, cry like this, and I don't really understand how it works. But an hour later, tears still drying, my oldest sister arrives and I tell her what happened. Oh yeah, she says, that's the worst when he does that. Because he's done it to all of them, too. Wait until his eyes roll back in his head, she says. That's the creepiest. And as if on cue, he obliges. And yes, it's pretty creepy. And maybe, just maybe, he's just messing with me. It's three days later now. I said my goodbyes to my dad on Sunday and headed back to Columbus for work to help my family prepare for this corona madness that we're in the thick of as I write today. Like most small businesses, the one I'm proud to be part of has a lot of planning to do. Plans are what can help us bridge from this weird time to whatever comes after it. These are hard conversations, and I go into the office to have them in person with my bosses. We keep our distance from each other. But we're scarcely an hour in when there's a knock at the door. And I open it to see my wife, who, despite loving me loads, has never, ever been to where I work. She's holding her phone, and she says, Your sisters are on the phone. It's your dad. So I step out of the meeting, and I speak to one of my sisters. Back at the nursing home, my dad has taken another bad turn. Another turn at age 94. And she says, We're just going to keep him comfortable. We're just going to keep him comfortable, she says. And up I-71, I head again, unsure if I'll make it in time. Never sure what to expect on the other side. My dad's heart is an end-stage failure. His breathing is ragged. And, by the way, we're in the middle of an unprecedented public health crisis. And, for the record, I should note my dad does not have coronavirus. If anything, he's got bad timing. His exit is coming at a tricky time, healthcare-wise. We're only allowed into the nursing home because he's considered terminal. All of my sisters are there when I arrive. Staff takes my temperature and gives me a mask before walking me to his room. My dad is laying, again at a weird angle, his face slightly more ashen, his breathing slightly more ragged. But he's more or less sleeping away. It could be tonight, a nurse advises, but it could be two days, 
It could be two weeks. That was two days ago. My dad won't eat or drink anything, and in this I believe we can see the decision he has come to. My mom died six years ago, and there's been some good days for him since that time. But there's also been a lot of visits in and out of the hospital. A lot of falls. Depression, I'm sure. Whenever I've been visiting him at the hospital and the nurse comes in with the bedpan, he asks me to leave. There's just no dignity in it, Petey, he'd say. And in this I know, he's telling it straight. Tom Petty told us that the waiting is the hardest part, and in this he could not be more right. I've spent much of this time in my dad's room, listening to his breath for the slightest changes, holding his hand, fixing his blanket. In that time, he's been awake for possibly a total of two or three minutes, and when he has, he's mostly just looked around bewildered and then gone back to sleep. The nurses have advised us of all kinds of signs we can look for to signal he's nearing the end. Coolness in his hands and feet, changes in his breathing, several breaths followed by a short period where he stops breathing. A nurse's aide says we should watch for his earlobe shrinking, and my sisters and I are constantly getting up and looking for these signs. Do his feet feel cooler than they did before, we ask one another. Do his earlobes look smaller? Did he just skip a breath? There's a round magnet taped over his pacemaker that keeps falling off, and I just can't bring myself to tape it back on. This afternoon, as I helped the nurse adjust him, he reached out and pulled me in for a hug and kissed my cheek, and then he did the same for my sisters. Only a glint of recognition in his eyes, but in it you can see that he knows what's up. He hasn't eaten or taken even a sip of water in three full days. Like us, I think he too is waiting. The hardest part. the end of the four-hour periods between pain medications, he begins moaning again, calling out for his mother, grunting, his dry throat keeping him from forming many words. I've been taking the night shifts, staying with him overnight while we wait, and I do a good deal of my day job work between midnight and 3 a.m., and I find it hard to get to sleep after. Late one night, tired of looking at my computer screen, but still turning sentences over in my mind, I take out my phone and I record this. It's just after midnight. I'm in a nursing home in Cleveland, Ohio, at the bedside of my 94-year-old father who is dying. You can probably hear him breathing here in the background. He's not dying from coronavirus, by the way. He's got end-stage congestive heart failure and bad timing, I guess. But we're at the part of his care where we're just trying to keep him comfortable. It's the end of day two 
going into day three, and that whole time he's been awake, maybe for two minutes, every time his eyes open, my sisters, my three sisters and I rush over, and we tell him that we love him, we hold his hand, and we tell him it's okay to go, go be with our mom, who he misses so dearly, who died six years ago from cancer. This afternoon he woke up for a bit and he hugged each of us. He didn't say anything. And then he looked at the TV and the president was on. And he made a sour face and he went, ugh, Trump. And for a couple hours after that I was scared to death that that was going to be his last words. But it wasn't. A little bit after dinner time, my sisters were preparing to leave. I'm taking the night shift to be with them tonight. And out of nowhere, he opened his eyes, but he found his voice for the first time in a couple of days. And he said, hey, hey, there's a table on the corner and it's only 10 bucks. And we rushed over to his bedside. And I was about to ask about the table when my sister Marty goes, we got the table. I bought it for you. We've got it. And my other sister was like, it's a great table. And then they held his hands and we cried and we said, you can go see mom. It's okay to let go. Bring her the table. It's a nice one. But he was back to sleep, just like them. And as my sisters were putting their coats on, I leaned down to my dad's ear. And I shouted, hey, I paid for half that table, just so you know. And the three of us laughed. Tired laughs, but good laughs. And that's about it. It's 12.15 now. It's just he and I in the room. I'm listening to his ragged breath and wondering when it's going to happen. Tom Petty was right. The waiting is the hardest part. I love you, Dad. And it's okay to go. Go be with Mom. She's waiting for you. And she's gonna love the table. After five days and five long nights, I decided to go home for a night, back to Columbus. The plan is to try and get a full night's sleep and come back in the morning. My dad is chugging along, his weird breathing unceasing, his earlobes looking plump and full. The nurses are now telling us stories of patients they've had who've hung on for weeks without food or water. I get home to our well-stocked bunker. It's the first full week of lockdown, and we're still thinking school might restart after spring break. There's this extra college kid, my son's friend from back east, who's staying with us because we were so certain the quarantine wouldn't last so long. A few weeks at most, right? 
I take a long hot shower, and my wife makes a nest on the couch. This is what we call it in our family when someone gets the couch all comfy for you, lays down a sheet or a blanket, piles up the good pillows, and covers you with another blanket, making a nest. It's a great comfort when you're sick or brokenhearted. We talk for a while and then watch TV, and I fall deeply asleep in my nest. So deep, in fact, that I'm tragically disoriented when my wife wakes me just past midnight, hands me the phone, and says it's your sister. You probably know what it's like to get this call if you're of a certain age. My dad passed peacefully and quickly when it came, his feet still warm and his earlobes full. Passed on to where I want to believe he's with my mom and all of the people who loved him and who he loved and lost. Parents, brothers, war buddies. I've never much thought of an afterlife, and I'm not the religious type. But I do know that you need to believe these things when you lose someone close. You want to believe that they're grabbing a beer with the boys from the Navy section base on Na Willy Willy Kauai, or buying a table with my mom. That they're somewhere better. And the truth is, just about anywhere is better than a room with beige walls and brown carpet in the chronic care wing of a nursing home in Cleveland during a pandemic. And you're left here, too tired to try to make sense of it all. But you're not remembering those awkward conversations when you were a young man, or even the frightening nightmares that woke you up as a boy, nor any of the ins and outs and ins and outs at the hospital, nor even the long day's journey to the end. You're remembering pizza bagels, and grape soda, and the sweetest oranges you'll ever know. You're remembering the person you lost. You're remembering the person you lost at their most animated moment, at their most animated moments, full of life itself, smacking their fist into an old school leather glove and calling out to you, hey, cut off man. Brown says is a work of creative nonfiction audio written and produced by me, Pete Brown, and is the property of Blue Monkey Communications. The show is written to the best of my memory. At times, names, timelines, and events have been changed, though I will try to let you know when that is happening. You can learn more about the basketball themed board game Hoopsters at hoopsters.store. You can follow the show on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all at Pete Brown Says and submit a story of your own or sign up for the newsletter at PeteBrownSays.com. There's also a link there to buy me a cup of coffee if you want to help cover production expenses. If you like the show, please tell a friend about it. I'm growing an audience, one listener at a time, and your help is crucial to that effort. Music and sound effects in this episode have been sourced and licensed from the websites Audionautics.com, Freesound.org, and PodcastMusic.com. The opening music is by Brian Hake, and some interstitials are by Kevin Davison. Their now-defunct band Delicious performs the show's theme song, I'm Not Myself. 
We'll be back with a new episode in just a few weeks. Until then, and as always, good times, everyone. Good times. Tell me, is even my friend's dear?